Our scripture reading for today is from Luke 2, verses 22 through 40. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came, into the, and he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up into his arms and blessed God, and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people, Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was eighty-four. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the word of the Lord. There are going to be two weeks of Christmas that we celebrate, this week and the next, and then we will celebrate the following Sunday, Epiphany, which is the remembrance of two particular events, the, the Magi's visit to the Christ child and also the Christ's baptism by John, uh, by which he was revealed in his public ministry to the nation of Israel. This week, however, we are speaking about Simeon's uh, song, the Nunc Dimittis, and also Anna's righteous behavior or righteous response in the knowledge of Jesus Christ having come in the flesh. We celebrate Christmas in such a way as to not diminish its importance, therefore it's appropriate to take some time to explore how Christmas is not just the light of the world, but specifically Jesus coming is the light for Israel. We looked at this a little bit on our Christmas Eve service uh, this, this past week, and we're going to reiterate some of those things that we've examined, mostly Simeon's song, the Nunc Dimittis, um, and which is the, the little 
in your passage, you see the little bracket in verses 29 through 32. But we're also going to look at some of the elements that this passage, passage speaks of, which are pointers from the Old Testament to the coming of the Christ, and then also uh, those things which point forward to Christ's death. It is not a dismissal or a, uh, it, it's not an irreverent thing in Christmas to also speak of the Lord's death being foreshadowed in the Christmas story itself. And if you if you feel that way, I might suggest that part of your rejection or your, your objection to that idea is mere sentimentality, that is, you don't feel like it's right that you should talk about the crucifixion in the midst of Christmas and the celebration of Christmas, may I submit that this passage demonstrates that it's in the heart of Christmas. That is why Christ comes. He comes to be the light for Israel because Israel's walking in darkness and she cannot be removed from her darkness except by an atonement. And so this forgiveness of sins, which these prophets uh, begin to proclaim, begin to tell people of, uh, is the coming of the Christ, but the coming of the Christ not without a context, the coming of the Christ unto performing the sacrifice that God wishes uh, that he would perform. And so, we're going to look at this passage in that framework, that, that this passage both exalts the person and worth of Jesus Christ in his person, that is, who he is as the Son of God, both God and man, uh, perfectly dwelling together, not the two natures not confused, the doctrine that we know as, as the hypostatic union, which is just a theological term, which means that Jesus was both fully God and fully man, but in such a way as the two distinct natures were not confused or uh, intermingled in such a way that his humanity was diminished, nor his divinity that's a really big idea, which we won't fully examine. But in the incarnation, he comes not just to be God with us, but also the, uh, the one who performs forgiveness for our sins. And then that is what we're speaking of, the light of glory for Israel. So we're going to look at four, uh, sorry, five elements. First, that Jesus Christ begins his life with holiness unto the Lord. Jesus Christ comes to perform the law perfectly, and we're going to look a little bit about how that performing of the law is actually done by his parents on his behalf. That, that'll be a very small element, but we'll see it. We're going to look at, at Simeon's song, the Nunc Dimittis. We're going to look at Simeon's prophecy, which is somewhat contained in the song at the end of the song, but also contained in a sentence or two that he speaks directly to Mary. We had seen on Christmas Eve, how God's promises are always fulfilled and then expanded. Whenever God makes a promise, like he made the promise to Abraham, through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed, then that promise becomes larger in scope as it's being fulfilled. So we're going to see Simeon's song in that framework. Simeon gives a praise to God, and then he that song that which praises God for his fulfillment of a prior promise introduces and brings about a greater promise that was veiled up until now. 
We're going to look at Anna very briefly, her righteous life, speaking of the righteousness that is Jesus, and then finally, a a brief summary of the life of Christ. One of the things that I love about Luke is it summarizes uh, at least 12 years, if not a a greater summary statement of all of Jesus' life in just two verses. That's called the Reader's Digest Gospel. It's wonderful. Jesus' life at the end of this chapter is summed up in two verses for 10 or or 12 years, and that is just uh, a beautiful thing. We're going to look at that implication that these two righteous examples, Simeon and Anna, point forward to the greater righteous example of Jesus Christ. They're like a, uh, a last triumphal crescendo before the finale, and we're going to see how that uh, is made plain here by Luke. So Luke is has been in the uh, previous verses up till uh, this, both Luke 1 and Luke 2, Luke has been demonstrating how Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the various promises that God gave to the patriarchs and the prophets of old. And therefore, he begins to demonstrate not only is Jesus Christ's birth details fulfillment, but also his very life, the actual things that Christ does, and uh, to some degree, the the things which his parents do on his behalf, are fulfilling the law. And, And Luke is demonstrating that Christ is coming not only to fulfill God's promises, but also to live a completely righteous life on the earth. This child is to be holy to the Lord. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, the Virgin Mary, who, uh, which, we, which we just confessed in the Nicene Creed a few minutes ago, uh, and he was the one who opened the womb. That is, he was the first child to come forth from Mary. And that is a demonstration of his unique position to be God's firstborn. Uh, Luke quotes from Exodus uh, 13 and 34 when he demonstrates that Jesus is to be holy to the Lord. And this this statement, holy to the Lord, every child is to be set apart, is a specific connection back to the Exodus story. Verse 22, when the time had come for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now, of course, Jesus Christ, being fully God and fully man, did not need in, in a way to be introduced to God. This is not an introduction of a human to the divine in a way that you might think would be uh, Luke trying to demonstrate that Jesus was not God. That, that's not here at all. Uh, some, some militant atheists use various portions of Scripture to say Jesus was not God. You know, if, if Jesus had to be presented to the Lord, then he didn't know the Lord. That's not true at all. The point of presenting him to the Lord is to demonstrate Jesus Christ as having been sanctified for a particular purpose. Jesus Christ is demonstrated as the firstborn to the Lord who has to be redeemed. He's redeemed that is, a, there is an exchange that's made, a sacrificial exchange that's made, uh, which God has established in the law for every firstborn man and every firstborn animal that comes about in the nation of Israel. Any of their firstborn were dedicated to the Lord, and if it was an animal which you did not wish to redeem, you had to break its neck. Like it, it says in Exodus, the, the donkey which is holy to the Lord, if, if that animal, you don't want to redeem it, it has to be sacrificed. And the Lord explicitly connects it to the Exodus. This this quote, as uh, we heard earlier in the Sunday school, uh, this quote by Luke of this one particular verse, Luke is attempting to invoke 
in the reader's understanding all of the context of Exodus 13. That is that the Lord has established a perennial, uh, a long-lasting and uh, eternal-lasting covenant on the nation of Israel. Any firstborn who comes forth from the womb, that child is dedicated, that child or, or firstborn animal is dedicated wholly to the Lord. So Jesus is this firstborn who is holy to the Lord, and the atoning sacrifice which he is going to accomplish is foreshadowed in Exodus 13. This atoning sacrifice, which is accomplished by the redemption of the firstborn, was specifically to remind the Israelites of God's redemption of them. We, we heard earlier, again in the Sunday school hour, that the Lord Jesus was brought up from Egypt just like Jacob or Israel was brought up from Egypt. The pattern repeats itself, and all of these sacrifices are pointing towards the atoning work that Christ is going to do. What's an interesting thing is it's not just about the fact that the firstborn of the Israelites was dedicated to the Lord, but through the scriptures, we see that the firstborn dedication of the nation of sin, that is the Egyptians, was to be the point of the redemption of the firstborn. Every time a firstborn child was brought forth and then there was a redemption made, God says that they were to remember it when the Lord himself set apart the firstborn by slaying the firstborn of Egypt. Now, that speaks of the great exchange that is needed in the atonement. The sin which is so great, which has separated the people from the Lord, is, re- is undone, is, is covered, is redeemed by the atoning sacrifice which puts off a temporary stay of execution, so to speak, until the Lord performs a everlasting atonement, as the book of Hebrews says. Jesus lives this perfectly sinless life, perfect obedience and fulfillment of the law, not just by the letter of the law, but also by the spirit of the law, thereby being righteous in the eyes of the, of the Father. And that holiness is set in motion in these verses. Jesus Christ, in his holy completion of the law, would not have been able to do it had it not been for the provision that his parents made. And this radically informs Christian parenting, and also, at least in my understanding of the ideas, are what we understand about water baptism, which we won't cover today, but you can think on that. Simeon here is demonstrated after, at this point, Simeon is, is some, we don't know if he's a, a priest necessarily, but he is someone who lives near or around the temple. Um, when, when speaking of the kingdom of God, oftentimes you remember the quote, violent men enter the kingdom of God by force. Simeon may have just been zealous for the Lord, having heard by the spirit and wished to be around the things of the temple. We don't know if he's a prophet. It's possible. Uh, I think it would be likely that he would be. But, but Simeon here is, is in the temple and he hears and sees of this, uh, this child who has come to be presented and he perceives by the spirit the things which are happening in the natural. Simeon is, uh, Luke describes Simeon's righteous life in Luke 22, uh, sorry, 2, 25 through 26. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. He was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Uh, many times in the Old Covenant scriptures, which this is not a classified as an Old Covenant scripture, it's a, a gospel, but it it's, it's the interchange between the covenants. And the Holy Spirit here is on Simeon. And whenever we see the Holy Spirit on a particular person pre, uh, uh, 
uh, pre-Pentecost, uh, we, we encounter that in the story as being a, a big kind of signpost from the Lord. Every time you see a major happening in the nation of Israel and her history, you hear of someone being anointed by or, or clothed with, as it's the case in Gideon's life, or, or uh, anointed by, in the case of Saul's life, the Holy Spirit. Here, this is the, the gospel writer's attempt to convey the historical details that the Holy Spirit is the one who is doing this along with Simeon. Simeon is a righteous man and fully devout, yet it says that the Holy Spirit is the one who reveals these things to Simeon. Simeon's righteousness, although he is in this passage commended for his righteous living, was not enough. The Holy Spirit had to reveal to Simeon the things concerning his destiny and also the Christ when he arrived on the scene. Uh, and, and that is why we see Simeon's righteous example saying, we, we need an even greater righteousness than Simeon. Even though Simeon was a devout man, blameless in his generation, very much like Noah. If you, if you think of Noah, Noah was a man who lived in a time of spiritual, uh, of actual dryness. It was not yet raining and there was great evil on the earth. And Noah was blameless in his generation. And Simeon is, is exactly like Noah in that sense. There, instead of an actual dryness on the earth without any rain, there is a spiritual dryness on the land of Israel. And yet Simeon's righteousness is used by God. God participates with Simeon's life and directs and shapes it in such a way as Simeon would be a great, in the book of Luke, first prof- prophetic uh, pointer to the Messiah and his designated function to atone for the sins of Israel. In other gospels, we see John the Baptist as the first public profession, uh, but here Simeon in the temple is the one who is giving a message to Israel, this is the promised Messiah. And so you, you have to see his song in that context. It's not like Simeon is just hanging out in the parking lot at their church one day and saw something over to the side that was you know, a tangential important thing. He is in the temple and he's declaring, this is the salvation which we've been waiting for. It's a public, uh, it's a public song. And, and then we see Anna expanding that, which we'll look at in a second. But Simeon hears from the Lord himself in a time where it says that there were, the word of the Lord was silent. In, in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, we, we see a similar time in Israel's history. The book of Amos prophesies that there will be infrequent words from the Lord because of Israel's sinning and in her ec- economic uh, deception that she commits among her people. And, and all of these things which she's guilty for, including her idolatry, that will cause a spiritual dryness. And yet Simeon is able to hear from the Lord. Very rarely do you see in the scriptures a statement that a prophet hears the word of the Lord for himself. Most often you see a prophet hearing the word of the Lord for the nation or hearing the word of the Lord for a king, but here Simeon hears the word of the Lord for his specific destiny. This is a unique happening. This is a glorious uh, set of circumstances. So Simeon is a righteous man and he sees Christ come into the temple. Verse 27, and he came into the, in, in the spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him, according to the custom of the law, he began to speak. Verse uh, 28, 
we see here that Simeon is a man who's going up to the temple in expectation. He's going up to the temple in the spirit. He's going into the temple with faith. He's not going into the temple because he wishes to be justified by his visit. He's going to the temple because he wishes to see God's true salvation manifested. And that is totally different than, than the way that all of the, the nation was operating around him. Simeon is not a righteous man to be justified. He is a righteous man because he believes in the promise that the Holy Spirit gave to him. And that is, by, that is, that is the energy by which Simeon lives a life of going to the temple. It's not just his religious devotion as if Simeon needs to, you know, keep up his end of the bargain. He is fueled by the promise that God gives him, you will not die before you see the, the Lord's Christ in the flesh. Now, that is a wonderful promise, and Simeon, by faith, feeds on that promise, and that's what causes him to look for God's salvation. Uh, he begins to sing his song, or, or he offers up this praise he says, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. The, when I use that phrase, nunc dimittis, it just, it's Latin. Uh, nunc, I think, means at this time or now. And then dimittis is either diminishing, as in shrinking back, or uh, dismissing. That, that cognate there is there from Latin to English. It's the time by which uh, Simeon is now able to depart or to diminish from the story. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. Some of the phrases in scripture, which we just kind of run over, uh, are actually very important. This phrase, according to your word, is what we uh, speak of in, in the creeds when we say, according to the scriptures. We looked at that during the Apostles' Creed series. But when we say that the Lord came, that he came and he was both God and man, he came to the earth for a specific mission, then we use the phrase, according to the scriptures. We're saying, according to the things which are prophesied, not saying, according to the things which are found in the Gospels. What I mean is that we are not confessing that we just believe the New Testament, we are confessing that we believe the promises which, for, which uh, beforehand told of the Messiah coming in the flesh. The nunc dimittis here, the, the second great phrase is, according to your word. Simeon is testifying that this is the fulfillment of all the promises. He then goes on to say in verse 30, For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. Isn't that a unique phrase? Something that's going on in the nation of Israel in a small room in a temple has been done in the presence of all peoples. May I submit that the, the testification or the, the testimony, the, the testament that God gives of what he's doing in the earth is not such that every eye in the world of every person needs to see what's happening, but rather that there is a representative sample by which all of the world will see the salvation which he's prepared. Verse 32, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. This is a great song. And what it speaks of is not only God's fulfillment, but also his future. God fulfills the promises as we mentioned earlier, and God, through Simeon, prophesies a greater expanse. The message which was given to Abraham was that through your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And yet, for a very long time, and for a great number of people who lived in Israel, they were expecting blessing and glory on their nation. Yet, Simeon expands it. He says, a light for revelation to the Gentiles. 
this blessing is going to, to bust out of the, the national borders. This is going to break down the cultural division between Israel and the Gentile, the Jew and the Gentile, which we see Paul demonstrate in all of his epistles, but specifically Galatians, that, that Jesus Christ here is the one whom through Israel glory goes to the whole earth. If we interpret the suffering servant passage of Isaiah 53 as speaking of the Christ, then this informs how we know Simeon sees the the Christ child. Verse 2 of Isaiah 53, For he, speaking of Jesus Christ, grew up before him, that is God, like a young plant and like a root out of a dry ground. The uh, the root of Jesse, which we sang about earlier here, the root of Jesse, as we've seen, is all but dried up. This is a terrible situation. The lineage of David is, is all gone astray, and there was no one on the throne who was David's uh, heir, and yet God brings out life out of a desert. The second half of the verse, he had no form nor majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. I love the English Standard Version, but every once in a while, I think it's helpful to go to the King James just to get a different perspective. The King James uses, instead of majesty, they use the word comeliness. And that's not a very popular word. In fact, that's not a word that probably was even 21st century English, uh, or even 20th, maybe, maybe 19th. Comeliness means or describes a desirable feature, as in when, you, when you're writing a sonnet of a, of a beautiful woman you know, in a field, you might describe her as comely, or that is something that is becoming of a person, something that attracts you to that person. They have a certain charisma, they have a certain beauty, they have a certain glow about them. You know, we have a lot of pregnant women, and the, the thing that you say about the, how you can tell a pregnant woman is pregnant before she says it, you know, she's got this glow. That, that is what comeliness is trying to get across. And, and this use of, of the phrase, comeliness, majesty, beauty, glory, is the, the prophet Isaiah is describing there was no physical feature by which Jesus would have appealed to Simeon's natural faculties. Simeon is not looking around the temple and he's, you know, he's, uh, you know, circumcising each child and purifying the mother and then looking, nope, not it, you know, and then the next baby comes along and, you know, nope, nope, you don't look good. Uh, that's, That's not how Simeon sees who the Christ child is. He sees who the Christ child is by the Holy Spirit. He sees who the Christ child is. He recognizes the Christ child when he, uh, when he, in faith, by the Holy Spirit, lays eyes upon the Christ child and sees him in the temple beginning to perfectly fulfill the law. That's exactly the same uh, pattern of John the Baptist. John the Baptist was Jesus's biological cousin, and he probably knew him growing up. I don't, you, you probably know some of your cousins if you have them, and you're, you're maybe not that friendly with them, but there were many times that John the Baptist and Jesus probably got together at family reunions or the three festivals which they were commanded to keep in Jerusalem every year. And, and there were definitely some times of visitation, and John the Baptist is not just kind of dunking people and then looking at them and saying, nope, not the Christ, dunking somebody. It's, that's not how John the Baptist sees the Lord. Remember when in John the Baptist, in the story of John the Baptist, he's baptizing and then the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus and John the Baptist then 
is able to, by faith, through the Holy Spirit, he sees Jesus Christ and he says, behold the Lamb of God. That, that great unveiling of Jesus Christ is not done through physical means. It's not like Jesus uh, was physically attractive and, and that's why Simeon understood, oh, this is like the ideal baby with perfect proportions and, you know, one day there'll be a Gerber jar and it, it'll be the same picture. That's not what is going on. Simeon is by faith apprehending what the Lord is doing. This is, is a remarkable thing because it tells us of the necessity of God's revelation to open up the human heart. You cannot just simply uh, stumble your way into faith. God must reveal himself to you. Even if you're looking for uh, his promise, it still requires the Holy Spirit to open up your eyes. So Simeon, uh, Simeon is, is seeing this child who is probably a normal average guy, and, and he, he doesn't have any sort of beauty that, is, uh, that would attract us. Uh, another illustration you might think of, if you've ever seen one of those Jesus movies, there's hundreds of them. If you've ever seen one of those Jesus movies, almost every single Jesus is mildly attractive. And uh, it's kind of like the modern, uh, past about 1970, all depictions of Jesus have had, you know, shoulder length hair or, or short hair. Some of them, like I think the, jo- the Gospel of John gets some short hair right. But th- they have this long hair, which wasn't customary. Uh, and, and then the, the guy is somewhat, you know, uh, attractive, or at least he's not ugly. He's not common. He's not plain. He's an actor who you'd want to look at for hours. And, and he, Usually there's, you know, some shimmering light or the kind of like, you know, glazed over eyes, somewhat distorted in another dimension, spaced out Jesus. Or there's the really attractive Brad Pitt Jesus where, you know, it's this actor who, you know, it looks good and, and everything, it, everything's always legit with his appearance. That is not what the scripture teaches about Jesus Christ. He is in his incarnation, the the doctrine which we celebrate at Christmas, Jesus Christ comes in the flesh and experiences the average normal life. He, He doesn't come to be a superstar, attractive, gathering a crowd to himself. He comes to be the true Israelite, the true uh, fulfiller of the law. And he doesn't do anything according to the eye of man. He does everything according to the eye of the spirit or the eye of faith. So Jesus Christ here is, is, has been dedicated and Simeon has seen this salvation, which the, the Holy Spirit told him beforehand and the Holy Spirit unveiled in the moment. And Simeon by the spirit prophesies to the future. To God, Simeon in his song declares the Christ as God's salvation, the light of the Gentiles and the glory of Israel. Notice at the beginning of verse 29, it has a noun of direct address. We're going to go to grammar school for a second. Lord, comma. Simeon's song is directed to the Lord himself, and yet his song is given in the temple. It is proper and right for Simeon to give praise to God, and then in his song of praise, to use language which describes what God is doing. If you look at any of the songs of the Old Testament, the Song of Moses, Hannah's Song, uh, any, of the, any of the various songs of praise, uh, in fact, Miriam's Song as well, they always are sung to the Lord or about the Lord concerning the salvation which he's performing now or, do, or has already done. 
Uh, and this song here is directed to the Lord, yet it's done in the presence of the people. He is speaking directly to the Lord, and then he describes what the Lord is doing through the Christ child. He is a, a light of revelation to, uh, for, for the Gentiles and a light for the glory of Israel. If you look at verse 32, it's important to see that uh, this dual, this parallelism is here. He is a light for two purposes. It says for revelation, and then the next phrase is for glory. Israel did not need a revelation of the commandments of God. That is why they need glory, because they had the commandments and oracles of God, but they did not have any ability to perform them, nor did they have any ability to walk in God's ways, nor allow God to live in the land in harmony with the people. And so the glory that comes on Israel is Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God in the flesh, coming and living among the people. Yet the Gentiles are those who walk around in darkness. So there is a spiritual darkness over Israel, but she has the commandments. She has the oracles of God. But Jesus Christ is not just coming for Israel, he's also coming for the Gentiles. And it's that promise which Simeon begins to open up. He says in verse 33, <clears throat> and his father and mother, uh, Luke says in, in verse 33, his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. So this song, they, they obviously heard, it was a public uh, it was a public proclamation. And then Simeon goes and speaks to Mary. He says, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. He then says to Mary, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. We looked at this on Christmas. So if you were here on Christmas Eve, this is a, a repeat, but bear with me. It's worth repeating. At this child, the proud and the haughty will fall, and the meek and the lowly will rise up. That is what Simeon means when he says, the fall and rising of many. What is John the Baptist's commandment before Jesus comes? Make every mountain uh, low and every valley will be exalted. This is what it means for Christ to come. He is going to set the wrong things right. He is going to balance the false scales of, of their spiritual condition. And though the details are veiled at this point in the song, or in, at this point in Simeon's prophecy, we know what he's speaking of plainly, that the sword which pierces Mary's soul is the same sword which opens up the, the heart of stone, allowing it to become the heart of flesh. That is the crucifixion of the Son of God. That is the, way, the, the same instrument which pierces Mary's heart is the way by which we are uh, brought into the covenant. That is the atoning work that is foreshadowed here, and it's right in the midst of the Christmas story. That's why I said earlier, it's, it's right to talk about the crucifixion in the midst of Christmas, because biblically speaking, it's the point. When, when Simeon sees Jesus Christ coming into the temple to be purified, he then, he, he then you know, gives uh, a prophetic declaration of why he's come, and that includes going to this place uh, by which uh, many fall and rise in the nation. So at this point, we leave Simeon. Simeon leaves the story. He diminishes into the background. And then we see a brief recounting of Anna. And I just want to make a few comments about Anna's righteous example. She was a virgin uh, after her... Uh, sorry, she was a virgin. Um, and then she got married. She lived with her husband for seven years. Her husband dies. We don't know how. And then she lives in the temple night and day. And this speaks of the perpetual adoration that Jesus Christ has in his life for the things of God. 
Anna here is demonstrated as a righteous woman. It says in verse 37, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. As Joshua doesn't depart from the, ta- uh, the tabernacle, Anna does not depart from the temple. So this is yet another kind of hearkening back to there is a new entrance into the promised land. She reminds us of the role of the Levite in Leviticus 8, where, uh, whereby God gives the command that the fire that is on the altar shall be kept burning night and day, it shall not go out. God wishes to reside amongst his people, and that was symbolically manifested in the Old Covenant by the flame on the altar. Uh, or the flame on the altar in the presence of the Ark of the Covenant. And Anna is like the living flame. She is in the temple night and day, offering prayers and worshiping and thanksgiving to God. And at this point, she begins to uh, exclaim upon upon coming into the temple at this point, it was her time to visit suppo- uh, at, at uh, the, the hour that Christ was there. She hears of what God is doing, and then look at what happens. Uh, she she hears of what God is doing, and then she goes out. Uh, it doesn't say that she leaves the temple, but she begins to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Luke here is saying, th- through that phrase, the redemption of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ's coming is the beginning of the fulfillment of the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, this radically informs the point of Christmas. Many of us have sung songs about Bethlehem, a little town of Bethlehem, right? Silent night. But how many Christmas songs have anything to say about Jerusalem? Not very many. And that's why I think we need to do some work. I think, I think our Christmas celebrations need reformed, and I think they need to be reformed biblically according to these writings, these accounts in the Gospels. But Anna here is, is describing Jesus Christ as someone to, uh, to whom she is giving thanks to God, or sorry, for whom she is giving thanks to God, and someone who is going to kind of change her ministry. It says earlier here that she's worshiping with fastings and prayer. That is a life of devotion. She's got, she, she has spiritual piety. She loves the Lord, and, and so she communes with him through, through fasting, through prayer, through, through the worship of Yahweh in the midst of the temple as much as she is able to participate. And then her role completely changes when Jesus comes on the scene. It says that she goes about beginning to proclaim to all who were waiting. And that includes her. That's why she gives thanks. The reason she gives thanks at this time is because it's finally manifested. This role takes her from being one who attends to the Lord to one who begins to prepare the Lord's uh, path by speaking to all those who are willing to listen. Anna's story, uh, Anna's story and Simeon's story show us the righteousness of Christ, not in the way that many stories in the scriptures do by their negative example, but rather in this case by their positive example. Both Anna's righteousness and Simeon's righteousness are 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 demonstrated and regarded as commendable. The Luke gives these people praise. He, he commends them for their righteous example. And yet we know that through this righteous example, although that righteous example is, is wonderful, it is not perfect. And so we see these are like garlands or hedging in of a centerpiece. Luke is attempting to frame this story of Jesus Christ's fulfilling of the law in the 
the right and the left guard, so to speak, of these two righteous examples. And he then moves on to that idea in the summary statement. Verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law, they returned into Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. That is said by Luke because Luke wishes to, uh, for you to understand that the promise which God said concerning the Christ child, that he would be born in Bethlehem, yet called a Nazarene, is come to pass. He's going into Nazareth and fulfilling that promise. Again, I submit to you, Jesus Christ did not leave for Nazareth on his own, but rather his parents took him there. Verse 40, and the child grew and became strong, fulfilled, uh, sorry, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is a wonderful ending place uh, for this account. Uh, Luke has just demonstrated Christ as beginning his life in the fulfillment of God's law, perfectly keeping the law, and not just the letter, but the spirit, the intention. And he, he demonstrates that with two wonderful pillars, Anna, Simeon. And in, in that context, with that scene created, he ends the narrative, so to speak, although the chapter doesn't end here. He ends the narrative with a summary statement of Jesus Christ's earthly life as a, as a boy growing up, a, a true Israelite. It says that the favor of God was upon him, just like the favor of God was on Simeon, just like the favor of God was on Anna, but in a greater way. That way is, is not fully explained in this chapter. That, that greater way hasn't happened in this story, yet that's where we're headed. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your mighty word. We do ask, Lord, that you would convince us that Jesus Christ is the only revelation that the Gentiles have. Lord, we do ask you that, that you would give to us a, a satisfaction in seeing your promises fulfilled by Jesus Christ. We do ask, Lord, that you would reform our celebration of Christmas, that we would be, uh, that we would be those who love to see how you are uh, wonderfully orchestrating events to be faithful to your word. Lord, we do thank you that you are not a man who should lie, but rather that you are completely true, and Lord, that you declare the end from the beginning. We thank you, God, for your strong, mighty hand, which is able to bring about salvation. Lord, we thank you for this season, which we focus on the birth of your son. We do ask, Lord, that by faith we would see, like Simeon, Jesus Christ as perfectly precious and and the only salvation which is sent down from heaven. Lord, we ask that you would give us this uh, Christmas tide, a, a wonderful, uh, joyful participation that we would admire and repeat the examples of Simeon and Anna, that we would begin to speak of you for everyone, uh, to everyone who's looking for, for life. Lord, we thank you for coming and rescuing us by sending your son, Jesus. Amen.